If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What did Christopher Columbus make of Jamaica when he was shipwrecked on the island? Who were the Maroons who terrorised plantation owners? And is Jamaica really the birthplace of Rastafari? In this latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, I spoke to Audra Dipte to get her take on your questions and popular search queries on the fascinating history of Jamaica. So to start us off then, where is Jamaica located? Great question. Jamaica is one of the many islands in the Caribbean archipelago, uh, and it's to the north of that archipelago. It's situated in what we call the Greater Antilles. Um, the Greater Antilles is made up of four, four islands, and Jamaica is the third largest island. So the Greater Antilles is made up of Cuba, Jamaica, Hispaniola, which is Haiti and the DR, and Puerto Rico. So it's, it's part of that lar- the chain of the four larger islands. And delving straight into the history then, we've had a few questions sent in from listeners specifically about the indigenous people of Jamaica, such as Laurie, who asked us via X, who were the indigenous people of Jamaica and did they suffer the same fate as other peoples at the hands of colonialists? Oh, that's an important question, actually. The indigenous people are uh, referred to as the Taino people, and they were there for several hundred years before the arrival of the Spanish in the late 15th century. They were there when the Spanish arrived, but they weren't actually the original. We now have archaeological evidence that shows that when they finally came to the Caribbean, that they mingled with another group that was already there. So we don't know too much about that earlier group. But the indigenous people, the Taino specialists who work on that period and on indigenous people, have suggested that they came from South America through what we now what we know as the Orinoco River, which runs through Venezuela and Colombia. So they took that river and it, it brought them to the islands to the end of the Caribbean archipelago to the south, and they moved their way up all the way until they got to the Greater Antilles, which includes, of course, Jamaica. What would life have been like for them? The settlements range, but we have evidence to show that 
Some of the settlements had as many as 3,000 people, uh, and they were organized by caciques. These were the people that ran these different groups, the leaders. And they had advanced pottery, they had advanced survival skills, and they traded among themselves and with people from other islands, and they had a really sophisticated knowledge of the geography of the area. And next up, we have a question from Susie, who asked us via X, where does the word Jamaica come from? So that the word Jamaica actually brings us right back to the question of indigenous influences on, you know, Jamaica today. It derived from a Taino word, and the original Taino word was Zameka. It's spelt X-A-Y-M-A-C-A, but it's pronounced Zameka. The meaning was land of wood and water, I believe. And continuing to stick with that theme of language, we had a question from Tommy O'Mac on Instagram, which is, how has language developed over time in Jamaica? We might tend to think of language as static, as something that it's just a language, but it evolves. It's a, cult- it's a cultural element, so it evolves significantly. And so in the case of Jamaica, we have indigenous influence, we have Spanish influence, we have English influence, of course. And then, of course, we have a whole variety of African languages because the uh, Africans arrived as enslaved people uh, and there were a whole variety of ethnic groups. So what you have is the mingling of all these languages over centuries that has evolved. So while you might have at its base English vocabulary, The syntax, in other words, the way things are articulated, is very much influenced also by, you know, African syntax or the vocabulary is also influenced. Things like the word hammock, for example, that's an indigenous word. Canoe, indigenous word. Well, thinking about colonialism more specifically then, when did colonial powers first come to Jamaica? Columbus arrived in 1494 on the first trip. He was shipwrecked in Jamaica in 1502 to 1503 for a year. So he got a full taste of Jamaican life in that early period. Um, so that's the that's their first arrival there. But this was the Spanish, right? And I'm sure we'll come to this. You know, that was temporary because later on the British made a play for the island, and uh, which is why Jamaica is an English-speaking country today. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But before then, I wanted to spend a bit more time thinking about Columbus and his importance to the story. When he's shipwrecked on the island, what does he make of it? Well, it's difficult to say, right? It's difficult to say because I'm sure in the period, I mean, when Columbus wrote, when he wrote his letters, he had a very vested interest. He had a vested interest because he needed financial support for other voyages. So he tended to write when when he traveled. The indigenous population, he didn't use the word indigenous population, like the Indians or the their docile or their good laborers or, or things like that. And we see the promise of wealth here, etc. So this is what his letters would suggest in general. In that year that he was shipwrecked, we don't have much to say what he really thought. He might have been very disappointed, though, because unlike Hispaniola, which is modern-day Haiti in the Dominican Republic at the time, Jamaica didn't have the kind of mineral wealth, the gold and the silver, etc. So we know, for example, that Columbus's family was actually given the rights to Jamaica. They, they didn't own it, but they were given certain rights 
I think they were called the Marquis of Jamaica or something like that. But the historians have suggested that the reason why they were given Jamaica is because Jamaica, uh, Jamaica wasn't seen as valuable at the time, precisely because it didn't have, at the time, the Spanish were very, very interested in mineral wealth. They had this idea, the vision of El Dorado, that golden city where you just go and find gold. So when you come to Jamaica and you see lots of lush greenery, and if you're looking for gold, Jamaica is not your place, right? But the British saw Jamaica differently, and we'll get to that, you know, how it became wealthy for, for Britain. Mm. And just before we get to that, I was wondering if you could tell us about some of the earliest colonial settlements on the island. The earliest co- colonial settlement, I believe, was New Seville. And, you know, these settlements were small. One of the things that they did do, though, is that they brought a number of animals with them that weren't in the Caribbean in Jamaica prior. So they brought cattle, they brought horses, they brought pigs, etc. And so this generated a sort of local economy and allowed them to participate in an external economy. So for example, uh, there were no cattle in Jamaica, but cattle and horses are things that work beautifully if you have a lot of land. So they brought cattle and they reproduce on their own. And there's just grass everywhere. So they were just, they just multiplied. So what happens now is that you don't have a cattle ranching system. What you have is a cattle hunting system. They put the cattle, they multiplied, then you go hunt for the cattle and the cattle will give you things like milk and leather and lard and of course meat. So these earlier settlements were based around these kind of things. And also remember that Jamaica was strategically placed. Even if it didn't have wealth, it was strategically placed. So when, you know, ships are coming in or ships are going out just to get to places that they wanted to go, where they where they believed or where that actually had mineral wealth, Jamaica became important as a stopping point. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. So is this why the English are interested then, because of this strategic importance? 
partly, but also the English had already been in Barbados, which is much further south. And Barbados was the proof for Britain, was the proof that you could get really rich producing sugar. (laughs) So Barbados was one of the earlier settlements in which they tested, tried the idea of sugar production, and it took off. Now, when uh, in this early period with the English, nobody knows what's good. Everybody's in the Americas and nobody knows exactly what's going to work. So they're trying things. Let's try some cotton. Let's try some tobacco. Oh, it's growing, but it's not as good as North America. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And then finally they land on sugar. And guess what? Sugar takes off in a way that it doesn't take off in colonial America just because of the geography. So it takes off in Barbados and now there's a vested interest. And fortunately for the British, because Jamaica wasn't seen as valuable, there wasn't a lot of defenses in place in Jamaica under the Spanish. So it became really easy for them to land on Jamaica and take control of that situation. Eventually, um, I think in 1670, that uh, there was a treaty, the Treaty of Madrid, in which Spain officially handed it over, but the British were there from, from 1655. And do they begin planting sugar immediately? Pretty soon, pretty soon, because they had already tried and tested it elsewhere. So they knew they had a good several decades of practice in Barbados. They knew what worked and they just had to familiarize themselves a little bit with Jamaica because Jamaica was different. Barbados was flat and sugar grows best on flat land. And then when you're in Jamaica, you have a hilly territory. So it becomes slightly different, which allowed them also, though, to get into things like coffee production, etc. And who was growing that sugar and that coffee? Here's the, the really interesting thing about sugar. Sugar really only works when we have economies of scale, really. So you can't do sugar small scale and generate a profit. You need large tracts of land. That's just the way the sugar economy is. So what you have is all these small farmers who were there doing with trying with tobacco and trying with cotton and all those things getting displaced. You have a handful, several hundred planters who have the means and the capital to buy up large tracts of land and and have the money to actually invest to create sugar, expand. So you have the displacement of poorer colonialists. A lot of poor colonialists left Jamaica and went to colonial America because they couldn't compete with this. And then, of course, the other side to sugar production is not only that you need to do it on a large scale, but it requires a lot of very cheap labor. So what does that mean? What that means, though, is that you have to find very cheap labor. Uh, there's very few things that's cheaper than, a, than free. So there's nothing cheaper than free, actually, that I could think of. So what, what that becomes is the large increase in the use of enslaved African people to do uh, the horrendous work of, that involved in, in sugar production. And is this the first time we see slavery in Jamaica? No, actually, but it, it took place on a much smaller scale under the Spanish. Slavery was there from the get-go with the indigenous populations, and with the Taino under the Spanish. When the Spanish came in, immediately the encomienda system was set up. What, and what the encomienda system was, it gave Spanish colonists the rights to indigenous people. you just like, you have these people, put them to work. They work for you 
figure it out on your own. That's your benefit for being the explorer, the excellent explorer that you are. This is our gift to you. That's the right. After a few years, though, with the high death rates and reports of exploitation, that was changed to the repartimiento system, which was supposed to reduce the kind of labor exploitation, but it was still very exploitative. Under the encomienda system, these indigenous people were owned by the Spanish. Uh, Under the repartimiento system, they were not, but it was still highly exploitative. And how dangerous were conditions for enslaved people in Jamaica? Oh, it was scary dangerous. And what you know what's interesting about that question? It's dangerous because it was arbitrary. It was a violent system. It was absolutely violent. I've personally seen reports, and any historian worker in the Caribbean has seen reports of somebody having their ear cut off or their nose cut off or their second ear cut off for attempts at running away. Now, why would you do this? Why would you do this level of mutilation? Well, if you cut off somebody's ear, they're traumatized, but they can still work. So the point is to traumatize them enough so that they would stay, but they are your property, quote unquote, uh, or, you know, legally. And so the goal is you don't want to destroy. Who destroys their own property, right? So it was arbitrary because they couldn't afford to destroy, to kill everybody that tried to to run away. So what they, they did is they had arbitrary acts of violence to send out a message. It would be a lesson to people to say, this is what you're going to risk is going to risk happening if you attempt to, if you don't listen, you don't obey, etc. Uh, but needless to say, they also didn't listen and didn't obey because, um, you know, who wants to live that way? And I want to come on to resistance later in the conversation. But next, I'd like to go to a question from the Wild Shots pod on Instagram. They've asked, can you tell us specifically about Irish slave owners in Jamaica? It's difficult for us to know. But the Irish slave owners in Jamaica were like other slave owners. I I didn't really see a distinction. I was actually wondering if that question was coming out of, because there's a, a lot of mythology about the use of Irish slaves in the Caribbean and in the Americas, uh, which is not the case. But there was a heavy Irish presence as Irish indentured servants. So before the use of slavery, or maybe even coinciding a bit with the early steps of slavery, there were a lot of Irish that were brought to work as indentured servants, and they worked under horrible conditions. But as far as Irish slave owners, they're no different. I don't see any distinction between them and English slave owners or Scottish slave owners, so to speak, in in Jamaica. And zooming out here for a moment and thinking about the slave trade as a whole, how important was Jamaica's role in the transatlantic slave trade? For Britain, it was the most important. We have over between 1700 and 1807, over a million people went to Jamaica alone. And that is more than went to the United States. So it was very important in terms of the number of people that were forced to go there and to work. The other question to ask, though, of course, is how does how is this population being sustained? And what we have to think about is the high death rates 
So why do we need a million people there in this relatively short period of time? Is because people were dying in in significant numbers. Uh, so there was a really high death rate, which just meant we needed to feed this system and just bring more and more and more people into these sugar and and coffee plantations. Um, but the sugar plantations in particular were known to be particularly horrendous because it required such intense labor. And how much wealth was produced in Jamaica as a result of this? Lots. <laughs> Jamaica was. In the 18th century, the most important Caribbean colony for Britain. The downside to that, of course, is that that wealth was concentrated, right? So the wealth was concentrated in the hands of a few planters. That's one. And the second thing to think about is that this wealth didn't stay in Jamaica. It didn't stay to sort of be reinvested, to develop industry. Most of it went back to England and was reinvested there for England's economic benefit. And, and it has been argued the profit generated from the Caribbean funded the Industrial Revolution. When we're thinking about the wealth of Jamaica is that we really have to keep in mind is that this wealth would not have been possible without the use of free, unpaid labor. If people weren't turned into legal could not be legally owned. So the whole basis of this wealth in Jamaica really was on this highly exploitative system that cost people their lives uh, and, and denied people the right to own their own bodies. And this is what slavery is. You don't own your own body. So that's a really important part of the, uh, part of the story as well. And how did enslaved people rebel? Oh, um, in a variety of ways. In a variety of ways. Some of it seemed like low-level rebellion or resistance, and then some of it was just high-level, let's just light the match. Firstly, you have the the plantation owners are outnumbered, largely outnumbered. That's one. Two, the slaves are there. If you're on a sugar plantation, you're cutting cane. You're cutting sugar cane. What do you use to cut sugar cane? You use what we would call a cutlass or a machete. That's a weapon. The easiest thing to do if you wanted to rebel is to take a, a match or start a fire and just let it go on a sh in a sugarcane field. Boom. That would be that would lead destruction and there is some proof that things like this did happen from time to time. They had the tools, they had the manpower if they wanted to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there were attempts at that kind of large scale. But things also happened on a low level. Sometimes, and we have to remember that these are human beings. These are mothers. These are children, elderly people, just people that are too afraid when they've seen the horrors of slavery around them. And they're like, I don't want to risk my life. I don't want to risk losing an, my nose <laughs> or my ear or getting whipped a hundred times. So low-level resistance could manifest itself in a number of ways. It could be just working really slowly. It could be pretending not to understand instructions. It could be sometimes the enslaved would leave a plantation for a few hours and come back and know that they would get into some sort of trouble, but they're like, I want to go see my loved one who's a plantation over, and I'm gone. What are you going to do about it? And there's a plantation called Thomas Thistlewood from the 1750s. And he has left us with a remarkable treasure 
uh, with his diary. And a lot number of historians have worked on it. But there's one record in there, and somebody's written an article about this, but the, I love it, where this young adolescent enslaved boy, so let's call him about 14 or 15, I've forgotten his name, one night he steals Thistlewood's horse. It's like a young kid stealing a car, right? He steals Thistlewood's horse, goes off gallivanting, comes back. Thistlewood confronts him or something to this effect and, and says, you know, what are you doing? And, and, and he, he literally says to Thistlewood, uh, if this is life, then life isn't worth living. I'm 15. I do not want to be a slave. So I'm just going to rebel. And so there are examples of that, not just adolescents, but of other people, just provoke, being provocative, saying, I'm going to do this, come do something about it. Like, this is my way of resisting. I can't plan a rebellion, but I'm going to take a personal stand and do this and confront you one-on-one. And thinking about large-scale resistance, we've had a question from Jack on Facebook who wants to know, what was Taki's Rebellion? So Taki's Rebellion was the most important, the most significant rebellion in the 18th century in the uh, British Caribbean. So it's it's very, very interesting. The historian Vincent Brown has recently published a really great book on, on this. And he argues, he argues a number of things, but for the purposes of the podcast, one of the things that he talks about is that the rebellion was more than just a rebellion for freedom, but some of the, the things that they were, the enslaved were articulating is that they wanted political autonomy, they wanted territory. Like they were thinking about, you know, in a very sophisticated fashion, they were thinking about statehood in a way. I'm not sure if if uh, Professor Brown uses those words, but Taki's Rebellion in many ways was really, you know, historically significant and also was important because it put the fear of God in other colonialists who were now thinking, oh, what's going on? This is even before the Haitian Revolution, um, which takes place a little bit later. So all of a sudden we're seeing oh my God, this is organized. This is systematic. This is not just somebody running away. This is planned and organized. So now we have proof that these people can organize in a significant way and they can hold out for a significant period of time. This is not something we put, we could put down in two days. And now we've got a question from Alan who asks on Facebook, who were the Maroons? Ah, this brings us back to resistance. And it also brings us back to why we need to think about the fact that slavery was horrible and people made very interesting compromises. So the Maroons were the enslaved that escaped. Jamaica has hills. There's a reason why there are no Maroon communities in Barbados and there are in Jamaica because you could go and the the point, if you're going to run away, the way to protect yourself is to go in the place that's the most difficult place to get to. It's not nice to live. It's high. It's hard to get water. You want to go and just make it really, if somebody's going to come for you, that you got to make them work for it. So you go in the most inhospitable place on the island and you learn that territory and you figure out it, you learn to master your environment and and so there are groups of their enslaved people who went up into the hills. And by the way, just to bring it back to the indigenous population, we now have DNA evidence that suggests that some of the 
the descendants of the original Maroons now have DNA that shows that there has been some mingling with the indigenous populations of, of Jamaica. This also suggests that the indigenous populations also ran to the hills. Some of them died out, some of them ran to the hills, some of them left the island. So we have these Maroons and they go up into uh, the hills and into inhospitable territory and they wage war. The plantations are being set up. They made it very difficult, very, very difficult for planters to settle certain parts of the islands for a long time. So somebody would you'd settle and then they would come down from the hills and they would attack and then go back up into the hills, et cetera, et cetera. So it was like guerrilla warfare. They became really good at guerrilla warfare in a way. But what happens, though, is this has becomes very expensive for the British, and so they say, listen, we, we got to do something. We're not going to win this. So let's set up a treaty. Let's give them a certain level of autonomy so they become like a nation within the, within the colony. Give them certain rights. Give them certain freedoms. They are free, etc. They can't be enslaved. Their children are free, etc. But they had to make a compromise that would be really, really difficult for us, to, for many people to understand today, which is they had to agree that if any enslaved person came to them, that they would return that enslaved person. So they were, they actually ended up, while attaining their own freedom, the British, they couldn't have everybody go to the Maroons. They had, so they say, okay, well, you're going to, you're going to help us maintain this, this society of enslaved people. And so they became, in a way, they became collaborators of the British colonialists who owned slaves. And so what happened in Jamaica when slavery was abolished? Well, from whose perspective, right? So from the point of view of the British, when slavery was abolished, the British planters, ironically, lost their property, quote-unquote, this being the enslaved, and so they got a, a very large sum of money for the property lost. All these slaves, all this property that the, the British made them give up, right? Could you, so imagine, and literally, if you were a British planter and you are going to, you have to provide proof of your wealth, you have, I have 10 cattle, I have a farm, I have a sugar plantation of this many acres, and I have this many slaves, and this many slaves is worth this much money. And then with the stroke of a pen, these slaves are free. So all of that wealth just disappears off the page. So these people get um, compensated for their loss of the slaves. Needless to say, the enslaved don't get compensated. And now the enslaved have to think about what their options. So, okay, for generations, we've been on these plantations. Now we're free. What are our options? Are there schools for us? Are there jobs? So this becomes a challenge from the point of a view of the enslaved. As you can imagine, a lot of them left the plantations because uh, Jamaica has a lot of hilly land and that kind of thing. So they went off and they participated in subsistence farming, etc., etc. But this became a real problem for the planters. Because the problem is always about labor. How do we get people to work for us? So then they start instituting laws. You can't, you cannot, there were certain rights that were as a given that people of African ancestry had come to accept, which was they could go and take a piece of cane, 
piece of sugarcane and use, have it for their own personal use. There was a law against that now in the post-emancipation period. So they didn't want them to do that. This, these laws were put in place to try and get them to come back to the plantation. So poverty continued to exist. Some of the laws became really, really harsh to control this group of people. And I have to say, by the way, I have to say they weren't free immediately. They weren't free immediately. They were free. They were free in 1834, but they were still required to work for four more years under what they call the apprenticeship system. So they became apprentices, but it was really just an extension of, of slavery for four years to give planters four years to adjust and figure something out. And next up, we've got a question from Marina, who asked us on Instagram, can you tell us about the Chinese and Indian presence in Jamaica? Absolutely. This again brings us right back to the question of labor. This is all about needing to find people to do work, <laughs> to do work that they're not willing to do or they don't have enough people to do or, or what have you. So the British are now in India, right? At the end of slavery, the British are in India. They have the means to bring people over. There's a British presence in China as well. And so what are we going to do? Let's try and get some people from the subcontinent of India over to the Caribbean. They came in smallish numbers to Jamaica. They also went in really large numbers to places like Trinidad and, and at the time, British Ghana and now modern-day Ghana. But they came in an attempt to deal with the fact that planters needed labor. But they came as what we call indentured laborers, so they were contracted. So they were contracted, long contracts. Conditions were harsh and terrible. But they were, they were not slaves, right? Because if you were a slave, your children were slaves, etc. This was an inherited status. Uh, as indentured laborers, you owned your body legally. That said, from the point of view, if you think about this, from the point of view of a planter, you have, I owned slaves yesterday. They have the mentality of a slave owner. So that doesn't change with, this, with, with the signing of a piece of paper and a pen, right? So they're going to have the tendency to exploit in a really harsh way. So the conditions were not great for, for these people either. I want to be clear, but they were not legally enslaved. And so they had, you know, there are important and fundamental differences. And changing tack now, I'd like to go to a question from Adam via Facebook, which is, is Rastafari Jamaican? Yes, Rastafari is Jamaican. It's uniquely Jamaican, actually, and it comes out of the 1930s when the um, Haile Selassie became the emperor of Ethiopia. And at the time, he was seen, believed to have been, the reincarnation of Christ come back for the Rastafarian faith. He was also, Haile Selassie was seen by the Rastafarian community as proof of something that Marcus Garvey said, which was is a great Jamaican hero. Marcus Garvey talked about, you know, that one day we would have black kings in Africa. So we have Haile Selassie coming to the throne. And so this became proof positive that what Marcus Garvey had said was true as well. Uh, so this sort of reinforced that faith. Uh, in many ways, though, so these are just, you know, ex sort of external factors that fed a particular way of seeing the world and, and belief system. In many ways, the Rastafarian faith was much more than that, though. They were anti-colonial. They were among the earliest groups to articulate 
about the injustice of colonialism, about the high rates of poverty, about the struggles of Black people in Jamaica, etc. They were really, really important in articulating the injustices and and sort of a proto-anti-colonial, maybe, maybe not even proto, like a strictly anti-colonial belief system, but articulated through religious language. And continuing to stay in this modern period then in the 20th century, how was Jamaica impacted by the First World War and the Second World War? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, both those wars were really important. I mean, when we talk about the World Wars, we talk about the fact that soldiers were sent. So, you know, they died in these wars and and um, made a contribution to these wars and to freedom and, and all of that. And, and not to make light of any of that. But upon the return for both these wars, the, the soldiers that returned, and this was not the intention, I'm sure, from, from Britain's point of view, Upon their return home, these soldiers, when they came back to Jamaica and elsewhere in the Caribbean, they had a completely different perspective. They had now been out in the world. They had uh, seen the world. They had seen credible racism even within their military careers. They had also seen man's inhumanity to man, meaning that You've left and you've seen people fighting each other and doing really inhumane things in the name of war, etc. And so this provided a different sort of perspective because when you're in the Caribbean, right, during the early 20th century, assuming you had access to education in the first place, you, the, the Caribbean, the curriculum was determined by Britain. So this was a very glorious British Empire perspective on things. This is colonialism is good, British Empire is great, etc. This is contradicts with the reality. But if you're passing through this system, and even though we have people in the Caribbean that are like, you know, this doesn't really add up what we're being taught, that there's a lot of that going on, a lot of anti-colonialist talk by people who are, had the capacity to be critical. When you leave... <laughs> and you go to war for Britain, and you come back, and you're faced with these injustices, you have new eyes. You have new eyes. So in many ways, World War I, and this was buttressed in World War II, helped to, was sort of a catalyst, or fed, or brought some energy to the anti-colonial movement and the call for decolonization and for more just conditions in, in the colonies, in, the, in Jamaica. So how does Jamaica become independent? Jamaica becomes independent in many ways. If you want, you want to think of Jamaican independent as the second attempt to become independent, you want to think of it that way. The first attempt at independence was really under what we call the West Indies Federation. So the first attempt was between 1958 and 1962. All of these islands are having conversations around independence around the same time. So we want to become independent. But what's our next move here? Do we just say hip hip hooray, we're going to be independent. How are we going to survive five minutes after colonialism? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get together. We're going to bring our different strengths. I have oil. You have sugar. You have bauxite. Let's bring these things together. We can negotiate as a team. And as a team, we can participate in the world economy in a way that is beneficial to us. We will have some leverage, in other words, as opposed to us doing this individually as small islands in this big world. So this was the first attempt. 
the West Indian Federation. And uh, it existed. They had a flag. They had a prime minister. They had a capital, which was in Trinidad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Trinidad, Jamaica, and Barbados were the three prominent islands to participate. And um, in... 1962, Norman Manley, who was for the Federation, he was in support of the Federation. He ran a referendum to see what the people of Jamaica thought, and the majority vote was to withdraw. So with Jamaica's withdrawal shortly thereafter, the entire West Indian Federation collapsed. So that was like why I say it was the first attempt at independence. And then we have Jamaica's actual independence later. So that was the sort of move towards it. So what happens with the second attempt? Well, the second attempt was was straightforward. We just have a number of islands coming out and saying, negotiating individually the terms of their political independence. It was at that point, it was just, you know, handing over of power and developing constitutions and figuring out how they were going to negotiate. But that idea of all of us together trying to figure this out and thinking as a Caribbean region as opposed to a Jamaican or a Trinidadian or a Barbadian, that was not easily, it just didn't work at the time. For a number of reasons, by the way. And is Jamaica still part of the Commonwealth? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's still part of the Commonwealth and it still has the crown as the head of state. Although there are discussions to change that. I think it was 2021 that Barbados became a republic which means the crown was no longer the head of is no longer the head of state. Trinidad has been a republic for a very very long time, but Barbados for example has become a republic, but it is also still in the commonwealth. So you can be in the commonwealth because it comes with certain advantages, in particular trade advantages, uh, which means you get to participate among all commonwealth countries that way. And for my final question for you today, what key takeaway do you think listeners should know about Jamaican history? The key thing that I would say is that when we think about history in general, we tend to think about history as the past, but it really is not. History is something that we are contesting in the present. It is a conversation in the present, which is why we constantly have these different interpretations happening with each generation of historians. So history, when we debate history, even Jamaican history, we are really debating about our present, how we want to understand our present, and how we want to imagine a possible future for Jamaica. So this is why, for example, we have big debates around the reparations movement. So this fight for reparations from Britain. So we talked about, mentioned that British slave owners were given reparations for their loss of property, right? So now we have Jamaica and other countries saying, well, we need reparations because not only have our ancestors been enslaved, our economies were underdeveloped. And so this is an interpretation of the past that we are contesting and debating in the present. That was Audrey Dipte, Associate Professor of Africa and the Caribbean at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.